Well, we're continuing this morning through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at two paragraphs in chapter 20. Let me remind you kind of where we are. We're getting near the end of the book. This is the last week of Christ's life before he was crucified and resurrected. He's entered Jerusalem. He's teaching in and around the temple courts. He's kind of crossing swords with the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and high priests, all these people. Uh, And as he does, Christ will explain things and they won't get it. So he'll re-explain and they won't get any re-explains. And this keeps happening. And it kind of reminded me of one of my very favorite clips from The Office. Watch this. Why don't you explain this to me like I am an eight-year-old? All right. Well, this is the overall budget for this fiscal year along the x-axis. Yes. There. There's the x-axis. I can see clearly on this page that we have a surplus of $4,300. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we have to spend that by the end of the day or it will be deducted from next year's budget. Why don't you explain this to me like I'm five? Your mommy and daddy give you $10 to open up a lemonade stand. So you go out and you buy cups and you buy lemons and you buy sugar. And now you find out that it only costs you $9. Oh. So you have an extra dollar. Yeah. So you can give that dollar back to mommy and daddy. But guess what? Next summer. I'll be six. And you ask them for money, they're going to give you $9. Because that's what they think it costs to run the stand. So what you want to do is spend that dollar on something now so that your parents think that it costs $10 to run the lemonade stand. So the dollar's a surplus. This is a surplus. We have to spend that $4,300 by the end of the day, or it'll be deducted from next year's budget. We should spend this money on a new copier, which we desperately need. Okay, break it down in terms of, I'm, okay. I, I think I'm getting you. That's the Jewish leaders right there, right? Like, <clears throat> give it to me like I'm eight, no, like I'm five. I, I, okay, I think I'm getting you, and they're just not getting it. And if you remember, they keep peppering Jesus with these questions. They're meant to trick him and trap him and stuff like that. And Jesus is getting kind of fed up with their questions. Like, like Jesus is very kind and compassionate when people would come to him with doubt. He didn't shame them. For, there was one guy that said, I believe but help my unbelief. Jesus was okay with that. There was the woman at the well and she had questions and he was okay with that. There was doubting Thomas who was doubting Thomas, right? And and he had questions and Jesus said, come, look at my scars. Be not unbelieving, but believe. He was okay with that. And sometimes you have doubts. But you know, if they're good, sincere questions, good questions have good answers. We're okay with that. But Jesus was getting fed up because these religious leaders, they had stubborn hearts. They were contented unbelievers. They had unbelieving hearts. They were not really asking questions to learn. They were doing like gotcha questions to Jesus. And Jesus was getting pretty fed up with it. It reminded me of a quote from a guy named Blaise Pascal. You might recognize him. French philosopher and mathematician. He gave us Pascal's Triangle which is the underpinning of computers, basically, the way zeros and ones make information. Pascal's triangle. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy, also a believer in Jesus. And he had this to say. He said, God has given us evidence sufficiently clear to convince those with an open heart and mind, yet evidence sufficiently vague so as not to compel those whose hearts and minds are closed. 
So you see, when you come to Jesus with good, sincere questions, he's okay with that. He wants to dialogue about that. But when you come with a cold, closed heart to just do gotcha questions, not so much, not so much. So Jesus is going to have a problem with these religious leaders. On the one hand, because they are unbelieving themselves, but on the other hand, there's a bigger problem here. They're religious leaders. Like they are influencers in their community, preventing others from believing as well. Now, we don't have scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees in our community today. But who do we have that would be influencers who are regularly preventing people from believing in Jesus? College students, how about I ask you? (laughs) Your professors, right? Like, it's kind of crazy. Like, it does not matter the subject matter of the course. It could be basket weaving. It could be strength training. It could be algebra, right? Somehow the professor is able to get X plus Y equals Z to mean Jesus is a fraud. Like, some, like they'll weave it into any subject matter. Am I right? That's just the way it is. That's the climate that is out there today. Now, I don't want us to be whiners about that. Actually, that's normal for Christianity. That's, that's the way it goes. It started with Jesus 2,000 years ago. And Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And so this is quite normal for us. We're not looking for the world's affirmation. We're looking to our Lord. And this is par for the course. Nonetheless, Jesus uh, was nailing their questions, right? So they're trying to trick him and trap him. And if you remember at the end of last week's passage, it said they no longer dared ask him any question. They're like, okay, we're done. Mercy. And so now Jesus is going to start asking them questions. Now, before we get into the paragraph, let me just point something out. Jesus is playing offense now. One of the tendencies that we have in Christianity is that we only play defense. And those whom we're talking to about our faith say, they, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? And we've got to defend, defend, defend. And at some point, we've got to start asking questions ourselves. Because if all you do is play defense, the best you can hope for is a zero-zero tie. And a tie is like kissing your sister. It's a kiss, but... Right? Like, not really, right? So, so it's not good. So you need to try some offense. You need to score some points. And Jesus is going to do that. And so one of the ways we can do that is we dialogue with people. They, they ask us about our beliefs. Why don't you ask them, what do you believe and why do you believe it? We, at least as believers, have reasons for why we believe what we believe. Most people in our culture believe what they believe because they just kind of like it. They've done cafeteria-style religion, and it's like, oh, I kind of like this. Or I believe, I believe we came from aliens. Oh, really? Why do you believe that? Well, my friend watched a show one time. That's just not really good, right? And so now you're basing your entire view of the reality of the universe based on what you kind of like. It's not bad to play a little offense. And so Jesus is going to do that. He's going to ask them a question now. And we pick up the story in chapter 20, verse 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And all of you went, explain that to me again. 
<laughs> I think, can you make that like a five-year-old, you know? So let me explain what's going on here. Jesus is citing Psalm 110. Now, we're reading it in English that has been translated out of the Greek New Testament. In Greek, the word Lord is repeated twice. The Lord said to my Lord, Lord, Lord. And that's how it's reflected in English. But, but Christ is referring to Psalm 110, which is written in Hebrew. In Hebrew, those are two different words. It's Yahweh said to Adonai. Okay? Yahweh being the proper name of God that God revealed to Moses in that thing with the burning bush and all that, right? God revealed himself as the great I am. That is Yahweh. Yahweh said to Adonai. Adonai means Lord. 450 times it's used in the Old Testament. It always refers to God himself. It is one of the Jewish words or titles they would use for God. So what Jesus is pointing out here, because our brains are hurting right now, I understand that. But what Jesus is pointing out here is that Yahweh is speaking to Adonai. That means God is speaking to God. Wait, wait, what? Now we as Christians have a context for that. You throw in the Holy Spirit, we got a trinity. Right? We understand that. But now Jesus is making a point to, he's playing some offense with these religious leaders and saying, hey, what's going on there? So Yahweh is saying to Adonai, that Adonai is supposed to sit at his right hand. That is the seat of honor and authority. Until Yahweh puts Adonai's, all his enemies, in subjection to him. Until Adonai is the conqueror. And all of them would have understood this as a reference to the Messiah. You see where Jesus starts out, how can they say that the Christ? Christ is the Greek word for the Messiah, which is a Jewish word. It's the same thing. So this is all about the Messiah. They acknowledge that Psalm 110 was about the Messiah. They know that. Now, catch this. Catch this. That the Messiah would be a physical human descendant of King David, and the Messiah would sit on King David's throne forever. That's Judaism 101. They all knew it. They all believed it. Now Jesus is going to make his point. How is it that King David calls this heir, this human heir of his, Lord. Wait, what? Yeah, everyone knew that this, this Messiah would be a human descendant of David. But now David is calling him Adonai. You don't call your descendant Lord, especially if you're not a king, if you are a king, right? And he refers to him as Adonai. And the issue is that he's preexistent. He existed before David. Wait, what? What is going on here? And the point is that clearly this Messiah is more than just human. And so now we're on to the topic of the hypostatic union. That's a $20 word. If you can bring that up at community group, you get points. If you slip that casually into a conversation, you get a sticker, right? <laughs> A hypostatic union, that's a big word, but basically means that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Hypostatic union at the same time. Fully God and fully man. And Jesus is pointing that out from Psalm 110, that what you have is the Messiah is the physical descendant of David. He is 100% human. And he's David's preexistent Adonai. He is 100% God, fully God, fully man. That's the point Jesus is making right there. And we can take a few things from this. Just the first paragraph so far, but a few things already. Number one, 
Good Christology. Christology is the theology of Christ or of Jesus, right? Good Christology, that Jesus is God in the flesh. I heard it described one time like the invisible man. Do you remember the, the movie, The Invisible Man and all that? Like it, Nobody could see him, and if you can't see him, you can't interact with him, right? And so what he, w- what he would do is wrap himself in cloth so now you could interact. And it's as if God wanted to interact with humanity and we couldn't see it. And so what he did is he wrapped himself in human flesh so that we could interact. Jesus is God in the flesh. And it's very important to understand the hypostatic union because it is the test for good theology. All heresy, all false teaching will at some point ruin one of those. Okay? Jesus is fully God, fully man. Heresy will either say, no, he's not quite fully God. Or they'll say, no, he's fully God, but he's not quite fully man. All heresies destroy one of those or both. All right? So it's a test for good And it's very important to us for our salvation also. Listen, humanity screwed up. Humanity was guilty. Humanity must pay the price. So the Savior, the Messiah, must be human for this to work. That's why Jesus is called the second Adam. He's human. But here's the problem. He also must be able to pay the penalty against an infinite God, that's an infinite penalty, and he's got to be able to pay it for all of us, and he must be perfect, so he has no penalty of his own. He must be God. The only way the gospel works is if Jesus is fully God and fully man, 100% both, the hypostatic union. And so what that means is that God, when he went to fix the problem, he didn't send a prophet, and he didn't send an angel. He came himself, and this changes everything. Everything. So the first thing we can take from this, what Jesus is teaching us, is good Christology. The second thing I think we can hold on to is humility. Humility. Jesus just asked them a really tough question. And the scribes are those who want to act like they know everything, but at the end of Jesus' question, they're a little bit more like Tommy Boy. No idea, right? I love that movie. I almost wore my Callahan Auto Parts t-shirt this morning. But I figured if I showed a Tommy Boy gift and preached in a t-shirt, that would just blow some of your minds, right? So can't do that. But anyway, about, but he has no idea. Listen, the point is this. Humility is good. The older I get, the less I know. You get that? The older I get, the less I know. We're talking about the hypostatic union. Okay, now I know how to give the correct seminary answer to that. But can I just tell you, blows my mind. It's a wonder. It's a mystery. And and we've got to admit that. Jesus is correcting some religious leaders who think they know everything and everyone else is just stupid. Oh, to be in my 20s and be omniscient again. (laughs) Back in my 20s when I knew everything. What I love is seminarians who are freshly out of seminary. They've got a keyboard and an internet connection, and they have all the answers for us, and it's glorious. God bless them. Uh, Listen, uh, there is great value in being humble, being humble, because there's only one who has all the answers. That's Jesus. And the rest of us are in this together trying to figure it out as best as we're able. And so we want to be humble as we deal with weighty matters like this. Okay, third application, last one on this paragraph. 
uh, we've got to make a choice about Jesus. The point is that you cannot be ho-hum about Jesus. You understand Jesus Christ, this man that lived 2,000 years ago, just claimed to be Adonai. He claimed to be God. Right? Now, if he is right, fall at his feet and worship him. And if he is wrong, crucify him. Crucify him. Because then he is not some good moral religious teacher. He's a liar, in fact, so bad that he is claimed as a man to be God. That's, that's satanic. See, you can't be a little bit pregnant, right? You either are or you're not. And you can't be a little bit God. Like, he is either God or he is not. And one of the best quotes on this, I think I've shared it before, but it comes from C.S. Lewis. He said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So you got to make your choice about Jesus. So what's going on here is Jesus is interacting then with these religious leaders. And they've got to make a choice. And so he's pointing out that they should be magnifying Christ, lifting up Christ. And what we're going to see instead, they are magnifying themselves. And that's going to tick Jesus off. So the gloves are about to come off. And let's look at the second paragraph here. We continue in verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. All right, so who are the scribes? The scribes are those who they studied and taught the law of Moses, okay? So think of like an old, stuffy, arrogant, religious law professor. Doesn't he sound like fun? Would love to hang out with that guy, right? That's who we're talking about here, okay? Now, they were into the minutia of the law. They were clearly legalists. In fact, it came to be that the scribes' teaching about the law of Moses became more authoritative than the law of Moses. Wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> that's the way they rolled. You tend to be a little bit more familiar with the Pharisees. Uh, the scribe is a job. Pharisee is like a sect within Judaism. A lot of the scribes would also be Pharisees. That helps you kind of put them on the map. But think, these are pompous, pretentious, stuffed shirt kind of religious leaders. And Jesus is all over them about it. Like he points out some things about like how they dress. It says they love long robes, which means they didn't wear jeans. Fools, fools, fools. All right. But <clears throat> you know I, I wear jeans like 24-7, right? Like everything I do. Weddings and funerals, only exception. But here's the thing. Uh, 
what has happened here? So these, these scribes, they loved all these long robes and all that stuff. And Jesus freed us from that as his body, the, uh, the church of Christ. And so then what we did is we went and now we have wings of Christianity where the priests and the pastors wear long robes. Oh, you call them vestments, but it's the same thing, right? We just turned it right back into that. What are we thinking? And then those hats, stop it, right? Long robes. So he's busting them for that. And then they like... They like titles and greetings and seats of honor in the synagogue and at feasts. They love recognition because they are pretty sure they are a big deal. And they want you to know they're a big deal. In fact, one of our elders sent me and reminded me of this clip from Anchorman. Watch this. Well, you certainly know how to compliment a woman. Now, if you'll excuse me. Do you know who I am? <laughs> no. I, I can't say that I do. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Really? People know me. Well, I'm very happy for you. I'm very important. Uh, I have many leather-bound books, and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. That's the scribes right there. Did you notice what he was wearing? <laughs> See that? He's wearing a robe, right? There he is. I'm kind of a big deal. That's the scribes. So they were into recognition, and then they were also into money. It says that they were devouring widows' households. What's that about? Well, it could have been that every time uh, they'd show up to widows' households, like strangely, always at dinner time, you know, and, and eat their food. And listen... Uh, widows were a very vulnerable group. They, they didn't have a lot of means to provide for themselves. We're commanded in the scriptures that we're supposed to protect them and, and, and honor them and take care of them. But, uh, and it's reflective of Luke is capturing, remember, he's capturing Jesus' heart for the marginalized and the outcasts and the downtrodden. So there's a huge heart for widows. But here the scribes are, they're showing up at dinner time eating the widow's food. Uh, they, they would also uh, do things like compel widows to give beyond their means to the temple. Another thing that scholars suspect happened, the scribes were not allowed to receive pay for their religious input, but they were also lawyers like we know lawyers today, and they get paid for that like lawyers do today. God bless them, right? And, and so, so they, what they would do is likely represent the widows in their legal affairs and charge them, charge them huge sums, huge sums. And so here they are, the ones they were supposed to be helping, they were devouring their households. Instead of lifting others up, they were lifting themselves up. Shannon said, she made a great point, it reminded her of Cruella DeVille. You remember her? So well-named, so well-named. You know it means cruel devil. Just clever, right? Cruel devil. Cruella DeVille. And uh, what she did, notice what she's wearing. Long robe, right? There's a theme here, right? There's a robe. But she's into herself. She's so pompous. And what she does is she pretends to love dogs. Why? So she can kill them and make coats out of them. So that she can consume dogs. And that is a good picture, unfortunately, of a lot of religious leaders. I'm going to be, pretend to be into God and pretend to be into people so that I can consume people and make coats out of them. Cruella DeVille. And then the other thing Jesus got on the scribes about is their showy spirituality, that they did these long showy prayers. Have you ever heard like a pastor praying 
And you're thinking, when will it stop? (laughs) Make it stop. Moody had a great quote. He said this. He said, some men's prayers need to be cut short at both ends and set on fire in the middle. (laughs) Right? Isn't that good? Why don't, why don't we do that? Because like sometimes you're at community group and it's prayer time and you want to sound like a preacher. Don't. Cut it short at both ends, set it on fire in the middle. That's, the scribes were off track on that. And so Jesus said about them, he said, they will have the greater condemnation. Wait, what? Not scribes. Yeah, them. But wait a minute. Aren't the scribes the superstars of religion? No, not if they're like Cruella de Vil. Not if they're stuffed shirts, pompous, pretentious, faking spirituality, and devouring widows' households. So that's the second paragraph. Now, a few things that we can learn from this. Number one, we ought to insist on spiritual leaders who smell like Jesus. What do I mean by that? Listen, uh, sometimes my wife will get back home and I go, Starbucks? <laughs> Have you noticed that? Like if somebody's been at Starbucks, you know, right? If you spend time there, you smell like it. Here's the thing. We ought to have spiritual leaders that spend so much time with Jesus, they smell like Jesus. They love him. They magnify him. They know him. They point to Jesus. And when you're around, Jesus is in the spotlight. Everything else is in the shadows. They're in the shadows everything else. And sometimes what you find with religious leaders, sometimes what's in the spotlight is some spiritual gift that they're pushing or some cause or some identity or some politics or some secondary issue of theology. And that's in the spotlight. And if you encounter a religious leader that doesn't smell like Jesus and doesn't put Jesus in the spotlight, I want you to run. And if that happens here, run. We just can't put up with that. Jesus has to be in the spotlight. Magnify him. Now, here's the problem, though. That's an easy application because you're not religious leaders. It's so nice to sit there and and throw shade and throw rocks at religious leaders and go, man, they need to change. But do you smell like Jesus? Because you can do that too, right? To be around him and magnify him and point to him. And here's a second application. What, what about lifting up God and lifting up others instead of lifting yourself? Because the scribes were messed up on that. If you think about the very first paragraph we looked at, it's all about magnifying Jesus. The second paragraph is Jesus is pointing out how some people were magnifying themselves. See the contrast? Magnify Jesus, magnify yourself. And so I learned long ago this wonderful formula for joy. It's Jesus first, others second, yourself last. J-O-Y. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Do that and you will have joy. Do it not and you'll have misery. And I'll warn you of this. Our culture is saying, no, that, that Y should not be in the third position. You go on social media and they'll tell you to push that thing up the ladder. But I think Jesus would lead us here to this kind of joy. The scribes didn't get that. They were putting themselves first. Now, another thing that is going on here that I want to grab from this is I think the scribes were forgetting about God. 
Like with all their study and teaching about God, they were forgetting that God actually sees, God knows, God judges. And they were factoring God out of the equation. Here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to remember God. In fact, I'd love for you to set a, an hourly chime. You remember back in the day, we had the digital watches that would beep on the hour? As preachers, we love those. Those are great. <laughs> I know what time it is. Shut up. Sit down. I'm not done. Anyway, so uh, we, we, now we got rid of watches. Oh, oops, they're back. Right? Like, now we got watches back. And, and, uh, and they don't always chime. But did you know there's an app for that? There is. There's an app for that. And you can set it to chime on the hour. My request is, shut it off on Sunday. Do that, all right? Do me that favor. But here's what I want you to have a chime. Why? Because if we're honest, what happens is throughout our days, we forget about God. And then you fall into bed exhausted and you go, oh yeah, God. Good night. See you in the morning, right? That's what, but what if throughout your day, every hour it chimes and it just reminds you, use that chime to go, oh yeah, God is there. God is real. He's my, he's my Lord. He's my Adonai, and I'm going to interact with him throughout the day. Use that regular reminder throughout the day to call you back to remember God. The scribes didn't do that. They forgot him, even though they taught about him. It's wild, wild. All right, fourth and last application. I want you to pray. But let me be very clear. What I mean is I want you to talk to God to sincerely share your heart with God. Remember, the scribes were offering these long, showy prayers to impress people around them. And let's be honest, at the end of your community group, when it's time to pray, and you go to pray in front of others, you are choosing words to impress the people around you. Your words are for them, not for God. Let's switch that. And let us have God as our audience and just speak to him. Let me share with you some of my favorite quotes about prayer. John Bunyan said this, When you pray, rather let your heart be without words than your words without heart. See, the scribes didn't do that. The scribes had many words but no heart. And you see there at the bottom, John Chapman said it real tight. He said, pray as you can, not as you can't. And so many of us, particularly when we pray with others, we're trying to pray in a way that we can't. Stop it. Just pray as you can. Just share your heart with God. Parents, think about this. Your child comes to you and she is having a really hard time in life and she wants to open up her heart to you and share with you what's going on in her life. Parents, let me ask you, are you concerned in that moment with her grammar? You don't care. Your heart's breaking for your little girl and she might share with you. You don't care about word choice. You don't even care in that moment if she cusses some. You just want to hear your little girl's heart. And what do we do with God? We're his kids and we're struggling. We go to him and we think it's all about grammar and word choice and sounding all spiritual like a preacher. I don't think he cares. And he wants to hear your heart. So just pray to him. Just share your heart with him. All right, speaking of heart, let me just wrap this up and bring these two paragraphs together by sharing with you something I heard from a seminary prof back in the day. He said, Head, heart, hands. In fact, everybody, grab your head. Go on. Head, grab your heart. Now show me some jazz hands. Nice, all right. Head, heart, hands. Head, heart, hands. Here's how this works. In our head, we must have correct 
accurate theology. Theology matters. And that's where Jesus started. To have a right view of Jesus matters. The hypostatic union matters. To understand that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the cornerstone, the Messiah. He is Adonai. That matters. But you know what the longest distance known to man is? It's 18 inches. It's a distance from your head to your heart. And sometimes we have good theology but cold hearts. Think of the scribes teaching about God, but they did not know Him. What we need in our heart is we need a love for God. Listen, we do not fall in love with theology. We fall in love with the God described by the theology. It's about a relationship with Him, not a religion. Right? So some say, well, can't you just love God? No. Oh, goodness, no. Because what if by God you mean Satan? You see the problem? Theology matters. But then once we get good theology, what sometimes happens, if we're not careful, is we get stuck in head knowledge and our hearts are cold toward God. And that's not what he wants. He wants his children to be deeply in love with him, not like scribes. So head moves to heart. And then next what happens is it comes out in our hands. Whatever is in your heart will come out in your hands. I guarantee you. It will. It did with the scribes. It just wasn't pretty, right? Head, heart, hands. See, it is with your hands that you will actually end up loving people. Because if in your heart you love God, then what happens is you love what God loves. And God died for people. God loves people. And so we love people because we love our God. And we do that with our hands. Think, if you will, of a newlywed husband. Buying his wife flowers, writing her notes, doing the dishes, even vacuuming. Crazy. Now, why is he do- does he do it to earn her love? No. He does it because he adores her, right? His heart is full of love for her, so it just comes out in his hands. He can't stop it. And that's exactly what we want to do with our God. We know him correctly, but we love him fully. And so it comes out in what we do for his kingdom. Head, heart, hands. In our head, we know exactly who Jesus is. In our heart, we adore him and worship him. And with our hands, we serve him and advance his kingdom. That's who we want to be. Now, here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to have a conversation with Jesus where you sit down with him and you ask him, Jesus, which one of those needs to improve in my life? There's no right answer. I mean, it'll be different for different people. But just see what God God say, your head, your heart, or your hands. And when he speaks into that, please answer him and say, yes, Adonai. Yes, Lord. Don't debate with Jesus. Just say, yes, Lord. And for that, let me pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Well, we admit that we have fuzzy thinking sometimes. We're going to be humble. We don't always get it all. And so we want to ask right now that we would have an accurate, complete, full, right view of you. Lord God, we cannot put up with a tarnish or a lower view of you. But Father, then, then could we not fall in love with theology, but with you who is described by the theology, and so that our hearts would be full of love for you. And then, Lord, let it come out in our hands, that we would interact with this world in a way that shows that we love you. 
because we love what you love. Take us there, Lord, please. Speak to these people this week, myself as well, and tell me which one of these three areas is really the one that you want to work on in my life right now. Speak, Lord, please, and I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.